It's happening! Are you excited to do the What the Hell podcast? No. No, not at all. Miserable, in fact. I'm not miserable. Just not excited. Let's just do it. All right. <laughs> Welcome to the Knowles 24-7 podcast. This is Brendan Sinone. Joining me begrudgingly and, and just crumbling to peer pressure. This is, my, this is my wedding present to you. That's fine. Actually, I was going to recommend that. I should have done the three-hour podcast instead of just the one, but... So we're doing it. We've talked about this for a couple months now. It's finally happening, I think. Uh, we'll see if we actually get through the recording process. But uh, we're doing the What the Hell podcast series, uh, which is basically a final look at the weird, inexplicable fall from grace that Florida State's football program kind of underwent under Jimbo Fisher. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't want to hear about the past or hear about Jimbo, if you moved on, that, that's fine. This probably isn't going to be the series for you. I would recommend listening. Um, this isn't going to be, you know, series of bashing him either or airing dirty laundry it's gonna be more of an analytical look at what went wrong and why things kind of fell apart relatively quickly after winning the national championship in 2013 so uh, that's kind of what we have planned for you guys we're gonna do i think three different episodes i'm gonna have chris on for this one we'll have wayne on for another wayne mcgahee the tallahassee democrat and we'll kind of then go from there for the from the third one typical of this podcast not a whole lot of planning but anyways before we get to that just a few Items of housekeeping. This is my way of keeping Chris happy. <laughs> FSU baseball, ACC champions. Um, and actually watched that game. It's the second baseball game I've watched this year. I was drunk at uh, Deep Brewing, but it was it was fun. They're strangely comfortable with close games. Aren't they? It, 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 it's almost like when they get a lead early in a game, they're like, we have to blow this. <laughs> we have to make this interesting in the latter part of the game. They're a good extra inning team, and you know their pitching's not very deep, but they're getting fairly quality starts. And the guys they are leaning on in the bullpen, C.J. Van Eyck, Clayton Kwiatkowski, have done a very good job. And then at the plate, Mendoza kind of came back to life. Raleigh has continued his you know unbelievable pace here in the last month, where he's been arguably the best player in the league for the last month. And um, you know they they get enough bits and pieces here and there. You know Raphael Bornegal, who really hasn't been very good most of the year, had a fairly decent ACC tournament, especially the last few outings. Reese Albert's been a guy that's kind of come alive. J.C. Flowers obviously struggling since he came back from injury, but they just they win and they got a good regional coming up. You know, a couple people probably look at the regional and go, "Oh, that's really tough" because they look at the names Mississippi State, Oklahoma. But the reality is that Mississippi State's a team that's played well lately but didn't play very well overall for the season. Oklahoma's a team that's good enough but not very good either. From a you know analytical standpoint, I don't think their regional is incredibly difficult. I do think they got kind of cheated with their super regional matchup. Getting Clemson, I think, was a little unfair to both them and Clemson. Truthfully, I don't get why FSU's behind North Carolina. Yeah, that um, makes sense just looking at the resume. And I'm not a and, big baseball guy, but that – I mean, I believe the reason sense. is from what uh, – Ray Tanner, who was the head part of the selection committee, I believe the spokesperson for it, from what he said was that they very much valued the regular season. Carolina won the ACC in the regular season. But that's also a flawed thing because of unbalanced scheduling. Um, But I think that's why Carolina's a six and FSU's a seven. But if you look at those two just head-to-head, their resumes, I think that it should have been flipped. Mm -hmm. Outside of the fact that Carolina, yes, they did win the conference regular season and FSU did finish six. But, you know playing top 50 opponents, out-of-conference opponents, things like that. I thought that was kind of an odd thing, but that's so, always so going to happen. people that put together a truncated, uh, basically, playoff system for, for college baseball are discrediting the truncated ACC champion. Yeah, and I don't really have an issue with degrading a conference tournament because it, a team can get hot for one week and win a conference tournament. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the 30-game regular season should matter. So I understand giving North Carolina that. But the unbalanced schedule part of it, and there's a lot of other pieces to a resume, RPI, strength of schedule, who you played out of conference, when you played them, the quality of teams you played. I think those things should matter too. And I was just surprised, you know, if I was making a prediction going into the selection show, I would have said FSU at 6 and Carolina probably at 7 or 8. Instead, we saw Carolina at 6, FSU at 7. I thought Clemson and FSU being matched up was a little bit, uh, I wasn't a fan of it. I thought they honestly would be cheap and make Stetson and FSU match up somewhat from a geographical standpoint. I know they're trying to get away from that with uh, ranking 1 to 16 with Mm -hmm. top seeds, but I thought that would have been a good matchup and, you know, Good for Stetson for getting a natural seed. That's a pretty cool story. They, they completely deserved it with what they did this season. Stetson's awesome for our listeners who maybe haven't been there and you know, are in the area and if they want to go check out like FSU baseball down there. It's a cool stadium and just really uh, really and neat little college. Uh, very pro-FSU crowd when you go there. Yeah. A lot of FSU fans do make their way there. And yeah, it's a, and it's a minor league baseball stadium too, right, if I'm not mistaken? I, I think they I don't really know. have some... Uh, minor league team or you know some kind of lower classification uh, integrated into that. The last time I actually went to Stetson for a sporting event, I believe, was a basketball game. I want to say Nate Johnson was part of the basketball team. <laughs> so that's dating it a bit. I think that's about a decade ago. Yeah. Nate Johnson's now a college basketball coach. So, <laughs> um, But Stetson's a good little place. Deland's a nice town, and they do support their athletics there very well. And FSU fans do a good job of getting out there and seeing the teams, too, when they come to town. Uh, real quick, would you go to Omaha if uh, if that happens? Like, would you travel to Omaha to cover would twenty four seven expense a uh, possibly week and a half, two weeks, and you eating all the steak you can? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I would go to Drover every chance I got. Um, I would hope to go to Omaha. I don't know if it's in the cards, both from a personal standpoint and a company standpoint, but. Mm-hmm. I love going to Omaha. If you have a chance to go to College World Series and you're a college baseball fan, go. If you're an FSU fan and a college baseball fan and FSU's there, definitely go. Um, it's awesome. It, that town takes to it, and it's a very enjoyable experience, and you get to watch a lot of good baseball. And the weather is usually fairly nice, and the fans are way into it, and it's enjoyable. It's like a, a party celebrating college baseball with good games going on. And there's steak and there's gambling yes. nearby. Yeah, and the Drover is the best steak out there, in my opinion. But many people have many opinions on the steak in Omaha. But The fact dro- you can debate about multiple steak places the, is yeah, probably... The, the a, Drover is a fantastic place. A broke college, Chris Knee went out there and liked the Drover so much that he went the next night. So... God bless college loans for paying that off. I've seen it. I see a twinkle in Chris's eye, and this is me buttering and help for, for the next one. You, you let hour. me talk about steak. You get me in a good mood. <laughs> uh, real quick, uh, women's uh, women's softball. They yep. uh, they make it to the College World Series. Uh, second time in the past three years. Third time in the past six years. So it's, they're, they're rolling right now. It's good yeah, they showed a good bit of resolve. They kind of got bushwhacked by LSU early on in that first game. And, you know, they battled. They made it a one-run game late, and it kind of showed that they had fight to themselves. And then they had to play the doubleheader on Saturday because it concerns all the weather on Sunday. And, you know, they did an excellent job of putting two really good games together. And that's a team that should be in the World Series. I mean, all eight of the top national seeds are in the World Series. I think that's kind of how it should have been when the tournament was laid out. It's a very chalky year with those are the eight best teams in college softball. And uh, Kylie Hansen's awesome watching the circle when she's on. She obviously wasn't in the first game against LSU. She very much was in the third game. And Jesse Warren's just a special player. My wife's a big softball fan. She goes to quite a few games, takes our boys quite often. I get to go here and there with her when work allows. And uh, we were having a conversation about where does Jesse Warren fit into the, you know, years of great softball mm-hmm. players here. And 
I always kind of start that conversation with Jessica Vanderlinden, who's Jessica Bowler now, married to Michael Bowler, former football player mm-hmm. in the Bowler family, Pete Bowler yep. family. Um, Jessie's right there. Jessie's one of those players, every time I feel like you watch her, she does something. And she does it on a big stage. And her play in that super, yeah, the super regional was phenomenal. And mm-hmm. awesome for them. Lonnie's a really good person, excellent coach, has done a great job with that program. FSU's made the ACC matter. And it's solely been them that has done that. And that's a credit to them. And they deserve to be in Oklahoma City. And to put on the radar for our recruit Knicks uh, next week. So we're recording this. I got, what's today? Wednesday? Today is Wednesday. Yeah, I know. Memorial Day threw you off with Monday did. being Memorial it did. Day. And I had, I had family in town for a, 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 a fiance's bridal shower. So I'm all thrown off with, with my days. Oh. Yeah, Recruiting-wise, we'll have a few kids in this weekend. We're still trying to put our finger on exactly who is going to make it before we talk it up. Mm-hmm. Um, Derek McClendon is one who has told us he expects to come. Derek Hunter's and putting a crystal ball that. for him. So those are guys that care. are obviously major targets for him, but things really pick up the following weekend when they have the skills camp, then they have the running back linebacker camp. Mm-hmm. That'll we'll be June a lot. 8th for the skills camp. And that'll Eight be nine, for yep. people. This is done different, a little bit differently. Than yeah. Previous and, years. And instead of having the, you know, under Jimbo, we had uh, three days and then big man camp and seven on, on Saturday and then July, you had three days. This is more almost an individual day camp that's specific to certain positions. They are going to have a seven-on-seven. That will be the weekend of June 16th. They'll also have a big man camp associated with that. But the other positions are kind of dividing, conquering with different camps, individual days. I'm my. I suspect that it will be lower attendance by design. Mm-hmm. But there's still going to be kids and parents that send their kids because it's FSU. And, you know, FSU won't say no because they still would love to take that money. Because that money and they, pays and they can't the coaches say no, beyond the contract. They can't say no per NCAA right. rule. Yeah, you can't make a camp solely invite only because yeah. um, the NCAA, you know, likes to make stupid rules. But they want this to be a as many elite players. This is a scouting NBA. event. It's a scouting and recruiting event. There's some guys that don't need to show anything. They just want to get them on campus. And there's other guys that they really want on campus, but they also want to see how they perform in front mm-hmm. of them. And it is so, that, that's the primary purpose of what they're doing yes all right let's uh let's get into it you ready for this because i was about to start round on something that jimbo would do with this recruiting stuff that was that was annoying he would say you're so giddy i am i'm excited it's just been a long time coming I and mean, i feel like we've probably over delivered this it's not going to probably be anywhere as good as you before. mean starting a thread where 120 people responded and told me i had to do it like that i'm sipping my coffee nervously right now yes but People care about your opinion. I think that's something that you should probably uh, take into consideration. I'm just here. tired of talking, Jimbo. <laughs> this is this is burying that mother. We're burying it. We're putting it behind us right now. Um, you ready? Let's do this. Starting off. <laughs> I have a list. Uh, Chris and I started putting it together. Well, I started putting it together and made Chris partake in it. If you're noticing a common theme in all this, when we were driving up to, where was it? To Tennessee. Peer pressure is a hell of a deal. <laughs> We were driving up to Tennessee for the uh, 24-7 Sports Conference, which we won an award at. I don't know if people know that. But toot toot! Yeah. Listen to this guy! <laughs> <laughs> uh, somewhere in the middle of Alabama, I, I whipped out this list and, and made Chris, like, held him hostage. Um, I'm just glad you just whipped out a list. <laughs> I mean, this is the PG rated. We're trying to be better for yeah. the people that have kids in the cars. So the list uh, is going to be somewhere in the 60s of just things, big, small, so micro and macro of, of things that just didn't really make sense. And uh, I, I think some of it is more clear in hindsight. Uh, some of you were probably ahead of the curve on, on this, um, but the results are the results. And, and what it was was after 
winning a national championship with one of the most dominant teams in, in 2013, one of the most dominant teams in modern NCAA history, uh, there was a gradual decline. He, he had the 2014 season, uh, which every game was just a struggle. We'll get into that. Uh, and then 2015 was kind of considered the bridge year. They go 10-3. and three. And then 2016, expectations were ramped back up. And you go 10-3, and three, and you have some really inexplicable losses. And, and then 2017, just the bottom fell out. It was something that, that seemed to be getting increasingly fragile by the year. So there's going to be different things as we go point by point here that are going to kind of overlap, I think. Uh, but again, we're going big. We're going small. Uh, and let's start off with, with number one here on the list of something that just, what the hell? Charles Kelly, and not the hiring necessarily Charles Kelly, but more to me, uh, the the weird scheme fit that they tried to force on him, the lack of support, and and just the the unwillingness to make a change when it didn't seem like it was working. But I think it does go back to the hire. Should Charles Kelly be the guy that Florida State football hires as a defensive coordinator? It, it's like rolling the dice. They hired Jeremy Pruitt, who was fairly unproven when he was hired. He for wasn't. That a, position. He just hadn't been a coordinator at all, right? And it obviously was a huge success. So I understand why you do such a thing. Mm-hmm. But FSU can do better than hiring Charles Kelly. Mm-hmm. And the other issue with the Kelly hires: if you're going to hire that guy, and you're going to entrust that guy, mm-hmm. then trust that guy. And I don't believe that that was something that truly happened in his time here in that position. I think that's fair. I think that to say that Jimbo. There was a lot of overmanagement, uh, micromanagement, I guess, of, of Charles Kelly. And you know, we talk about the scheme. This is something that we've talked about before is, is you know, Jeremy Pruitt came in and put in that Nick Saban uh, pattern matching uh, defense. And it worked really, really well for Florida State in 2013. And they asked Charles Kelly to, to do the same thing. The issue was that that wasn't his bread and butter. And it's a really complex defensive scheme. And that's something that you don't necessarily believe in. It, it just was round pegs. What was it? Square hole? Wait, which one? Square hole around peg? I don't know. It didn't make, they hired guys like Sal Sonsuri to be a support system, and Sal understood it. Yeah. Obviously, well, Sal left Sal the left. program. Yeah. And I don't think they really ever had anybody after that that he could lean on, and Brad Lawling certainly wasn't that guy. Yeah. That, that relationship between Charles and Brad was not a great one, mm-hmm. and it certainly didn't help the dynamics of what was going on with the defense. Mm-hmm. It was, it, And you look at the production from the defense. Um, you know, 2013, they have a great defense, and they're averaging you know four – Yards that they allow per play, pretty much. Next year goes up to five point five one with a bunch of guys who went on to play in the NFL, and that was kind of considered like you know not an aberration, but uh, so many of those defenders were part of the twenty thirteen team, and and I think there was at least some sort of narrative of like, well, they've checked out. They're waiting for an NFL. Paycheck. Yeah, and that was at least yeah. you can understand that as a human, you know, which is um, fine for a year, but when it becomes yep. 2015, 2016, 2017, it, it's, it's not. It's weird. It was just ping pong. Twenty fifteen, it goes to four point six eight yards per play, which is top twenty, but not just not elite. Uh, and then 2016, 5.27, which is bad, and then four point seven five this past year, just good, bad, good, bad, never elite, never great. Uh, this is gonna be a common theme, Chris. Uh, failure to maximize. I think the asset set that is university and, and football program did a good job of stockpiling like credit to Jimbo Fisher and those guys they brought in elite players uh inability to put them in the right places or to get them in a good position to succeed uh I think was pretty damning also a defensive coordinator who's also a defensive backs coach and some of the biggest flaws with defense over those years yeah was blown coverage in the secondary and it was a regular occurrence it wasn't here or there or solely one guy despite Trey Marshall mm-hmm. commonly being one of those guys it was consistent, and that that's just that's a flaw in the system. It dawned on me late last year. I was doing sideline watching and, and watching Charles Kelly having to be the secondary coach and defensive coordinator while not getting very much support at all, and that's something we'll get into later. That was, to me, uh, 
crystallizing of, yeah. of, of issues that were far more prevalent than just can he call plays or not. If you're going to hire a coordinator who you have some underbelly belief that he may not be, mm-hmm. you know, completely primed for that job, mm-hmm. hire people around him that support him, not, you know, Lazy Log and Bill Miller and Brad Lawing, who's a destructive force. Mm-hmm. And that the dynamics of that staff defensively, beyond Odell Higgins being Odell, mm-hmm. was horrendous. Not good. It was not good. Um, and the fact that, and this isn't, again, this isn't a meant to be a, a poop on people podcast. Like, I like Charles Kelly. You really, hey, really like sure. Charles. Um, Charles, Kelly, Charles Kelly, the human being, is the best coach I've ever dealt with in this job mm-hmm. from a personal standpoint. Unbelievable person, looks you straight in the eye, says what he thinks, but it's very nice, very easy to deal with. Mm-hmm. He cared a great deal. It yeah. irked him when they struggled. Mm-hmm. When when things were written negatively about him, it hurt him, but mm-hmm. he also understood you were doing your job. Yeah. Uh, Charles is a good people. I hope he does well at Tennessee. I hope he gets another shot at a university to you know show what he can do, but it didn't work at FSU. It, and it was clear during his tenure that it wasn't working, and they didn't fix it nor move on from it. And you can't just stay the same and truthfully get worse with what you're hiring around them and expect it to get better. That's, I think there's a scenario in which it works out, but we never saw that. I, I think one thing that bothered me was that people thought he was incompetent. I don't think he was incompetent. I think he was just in over his head with the situation around him. He wasn't adept of enough of a play caller and didn't have enough of an intimate It wasn't knowledge his system. Of the, exactly. I think there's a time and place where he could be good. You, you can't coach that which is not yours. Yeah. Yep. Harlan Barnett's going to coach the kind of defense Harlan Barnett wants to run. Charles Kelly wasn't doing that. And Harlan Barnett's a better coach than Charles Kelly, in my opinion and estimation. Based on what he's done at Michigan State. But but there's something to that. If you're coaching what you truly believe in, you're going to be able to do it better than something you're trying to coach because you're teaching it. There's a difference to those two things to me. Early on, very, very early on in the Willie Taggart era, that's one thing I think that we're going to see different is uh, adaptability, um, malleability, and a willingness to to kind of back off and, and let people below you, whether they're players. Or the best Kelly. defenses under Charles Kelly, I think you would agree, were when they went simplistic. The second half of the 2016. 4-3 type stuff, yep. you know, simple reads, play your man, be physical, be aggressive, go after it when you can go after it. They were better when they did that, when they were trying to do the more complex things that it's pretty clear was what top them out and wanted yeah. as their defensive scheme. It's going to be a common theme here. So let's – one more thing before we move on to, uh, from Charles Kelly. When he came to Florida State, he was a linebacker coach and special teams coordinator. The special teams were really good. Uh, FEI had them top 10 in 2013, and the linebackers, man, Telvin Smith wasn't a full-time starter before Charles Kelly got there. I don't think that, you know, you credit Charles Kelly for, for Telvin Smith being what he is, but he helped get him to the next level. Terrence Smith was probably the second-best linebacker FSU's had. Uh, since 2013, right? Yeah. Since yep, since 2013. You, you weaken the linebacker position, moving him to yeah. secondary. You weaken the secondary, moving him to the secondary. Uh, and a special a teams, whole lot of which, things Graham, which isn't even on this list yeah, today. But, yeah. <laughs> All right, number two. The first eight are going to be coaching decisions. Rick Trickett, again, a mismatch. Listen, guys, Rick Trickett can coach football. I know there's some of you that don't like to think that. He literally wrote a freaking book on it. New England Patriots uh, have drafted a couple of those guys that he's thought of extremely highly. And you can, I think, maybe make the case that he lost some of his touch, ability to relay messages as he got a little bit older. Uh, but to me, Chris, the big thing, I mean, dude, he produced like Rodney Hudson, Brian Stark, Trey Jackson, Cam Irving, Roger Johnson, Malik Watson. These are guys who got drafted and you know became millionaires in a large part because of him. Don't forget Rick Leonard. That's Sal Sinceri's uh, job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Graphic language. (laughs) 
to me, like the, the issue here is, man, it just didn't match with, with what, and this is something that became more apparent later on with what Rick Trickett was trying to accomplish with what he recruited and what system he wanted to run. And he was in charge of kind of the offensive, uh, the run game. Uh, versus what, what Jimbo Fisher wanted. And again, it's just the unwillingness to let people completely do what they want to do. It was micromanagement again, and it just it didn't work the past couple of years. It didn't. Well, I think offensive linemen issues were sort of three-pronged. One, recruiting was flawed. Mm-hmm. You, you need to consistently recruit three to five guys on the offensive line every year. Regardless of what the depth chart says, you do that every year. You want a group that you bring in that essentially can play at least one guy at each spot mm-hmm. every year. No matter what goes on, it's a position where a lot of guys get hurt. Some guys' bodies go to, you know, the wasteland of being too heavy or not being able to carry the right weight or not getting strong enough. You consistently do that. FSU did a very poor job of being way too up and down with how many bodies they took in a given year. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the type of players they recruited. Well, they got guys like Roger Johnson and Josh Ball, guys who were highly thought of offensive line targets. They also kind of settled for a lot of other guys that they thought they could develop. And for a lot of those guys, they did develop them, bring them to a high level. Rodney Hudson's probably the definition of that. You know, a guy who's a well-thought-of recruit, but more so was a Rick Trickett recruit, developed into a great player. And then the third issue was the body type. Rick Trickett had a certain kind of guy he loved. You could tell when a kid walked into camp and was going to work for Rick that he was going to be about that guy. Mm-hmm. Jimbo Fisher was not always about that guy. Jimbo liked the thick, big bone, big body, SEC, mm-hmm. in quotation, body type. I don't know if Rick was in love with that. And I, I think there were some issues, not with the ability to coach, but the ability to turn a player around quickly. Mm-hmm. It was almost like it was a two-year two down, two teardown process, mm-hmm. and then you might get something out of them year three. It was just, it was flawed. There was, to me, that's a position where you almost always have to have, you know, you want that upperclassman group that's going to be dependable. Then you want that next group who, if you had to go to them, they could do it for you. Then you want that next group who... God, I hope they never have to play this year. But they're going to be good in a couple years. And then you have that next group of, Jesus, if we get here, we're really thin. Mm-hmm. And the problem for FSU is I felt like they went from having never having that great top group to having a group that was good enough but probably a little bit you know, ahead of schedule as far as having to play. And then the next group was, good Lord, we have to play these guys. Mm-hmm. You, you can, that doesn't work. It's a position where you need 12 to 16 guys and you need to have tiers of what you're getting from those guys. And FSU did not have that. Yeah, there's a lot of mismatches, and I think that created issues with consistency. And again, kind of the same thing, man. A failure to maximize like the talent that you that you had. Um, that's kind of the name of the game, and and it just it didn't it didn't materialize. All right, we're already 20 minutes in, and we're only on point number three. <laughs> Gonna move it along a little bit with some of these, and then we'll go in depth in others. Uh, number three, keeping Vic Valoria. A guy can't get a DUI who has to tell guys to listen to everything in the yeah. off season and have that message ring true. He should have been fired the minute he had the misdeed off the field. Yeah, and it's not to say that you, you know people can't make mistakes, but in that specific position and the way that kind of happened and how public it was and the fact that it started on campus and trickled to not on campus, um, yeah, it's a bad message and, and something that we're starting to get into here on this list. A lack of accountability uh, starts trickling throughout the program, and you see that you know probably after 2013, a lot of, not exceptions are made, but... Um, no, no, maybe our, maybe there were a lot of exceptions made for, for different people. And, and I know a lot of uh, either players or you know, staff members thought that 
every, people were held to different standards depending on who you were. It and came to light during last season that some players felt like other guys cut corners in the offseason program, and it wasn't a few here and there. It was a healthy habit mm-hmm. of many players. And that was, you know, with the Lord, aside from even DUI, just guys, I mean, Willie Taggart was pretty damn clear. And it is typical if a new coach comes in and says the weight program isn't great. Um, this is one, there's typically a reason why guys are, you know, why, why a coaching job opens to begin with. Two, I think it buys you a little time as a coach to kind of set a, not a low bar, but say, yeah, we have some work to do. Uh, but, I mean, I think the results we've seen so far, like Dontavis Jackson getting slimmer, we're, I'll talk about this more Cold later. shoes in better shape. Yeah, there's guys who have gotten in markedly better shape quickly. There was a lack of production in the off-season conditioning program. That between between that and then the off-field issue with Vic, um, yeah. Again, not moving on quickly enough. I think being stubborn from Jimbo's part uh, problematic. Number four, Lawrence Dossie's longevity. Uh, Long Lawrence uh, FSU uh, pseudo legend is someone who's really popular from his time playing at Florida State. Uh, his wide receivers, by all accounts, love playing for him. A really nice guy, good to work with. Three guys drafted in 10 years at the position. Yep. At Florida State. The land of in, – in an area that's comfortably snug in Florida and Alabama and Georgia and the land of speed, and that's three wide receivers drafted. The laundry list of really talented wide receivers at FSU did not heavily pursue nor land in those 10 years. Yep. Tells that story. Yep. All right. Number five, Bill Miller, Bill Miller. Bill Miller. Probably the worst hire to Jimbo Fisher. Yeah, I would say this. Like, at the time, like, you have to get a guy as a stopgap. That's fine. The one year, it was the fact that it continued for, like, two or three years after. Just, yeah, you're probably right. I'm not saying it wasn't a good hire. It just, you know, I think you can understand, you can follow the the trail of logic to why you hire someone to begin with. Uh, But, man, just after you see it's not getting done, how methodic, not even methodic, just how slow and meandering those there's there's no benefit. Drills were? There's no benefit to Bill Miller. <laughs> okay. There literally isn't a single one I can think. From a coaching standpoint, does he know X's and O's? Yes, he's been in the business too long not to. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. He you don't keep getting college jobs and not know how to coach. So I'm not saying he can't do that. But his ability to apply his coaching didn't work with today's student athlete. He bored him into tears. And I was I heard this from more than one person that he struggled in blue understanding the scheme as well. Yeah. Like, he, he didn't have a great knowledge of it, or at least the ability to teach it. Um, Recruiting-wise, can he get you in the door? Yes. A lot of kids and parents refer to him as, like, the nice grandfather type, mm-hmm. and he was good at that. Was he a closer? No, I wouldn't consider him that. But I think with the staff dynamics that they had, then they needed a closer more than they needed a the guy that could get you in the door. FSU's going to get you in most doors. Yeah. Just naturally. Uh, Personality-wise, I just... I don't get how he fits that room. Like, what does he bring that helps Charles Kelly coach defense better or that makes the defense as a whole better or makes his position better? It just was idiotic to me. Like, he, there wasn't a value to him. Were you there? Was it after the 20, It was after the 2016 There's a reason season. he's a journeyman coach, too. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Um, after the 2016 season, we were at the National Signing Day party. Remember that kind of send-off? It almost sounded like a send-off. Yeah, it, it almost sounded like a guy that might be walking out the door and retiring. Yeah. Then they after they talked about his bad driving. <laughs> it didn't happen. All right, number six, Damien Craig, staff chemistry. Damien Craig is a ace recruiter. He's every bit of a dog recruiter that you would want. Also a mercenary. Yes, very much so. And he's also Jimbo's guy. He's a, to some already. degree, he's also a wrecking ball to a coaching staff. Mm-hmm. If you have a coaching staff whose dynamics are ultra-competitive, like Jimbo's was 
in the early part of his regime, it works. Mm-hmm. Because him and Eddie Grant are going to compete with each other, and others are going to be in that fray, and it's always going to be trying to one-up each other. That works. Memphis when you're get Jameis Winston if it isn't right. for Damian Craig. If your staff dynamic happen. is we're supposed to be a bunch that's older, mature, coaching, and trying to develop talent while also getting good players because we're FSU and we can recruit at a decent level, sometimes mm-hmm. high level, I don't know if Damian works for that. And I think bringing Damian back in completely cut Randy Sanders off at the knees. Yeah. Yep. It did. And Randy Sanders is a guy who Jimbo leaned on in 2015 as a play caller and as an offensive manager for him, and then he cuts his knees out from him. And I think you saw that play out on the sideline Mm -hmm. last year where Randy felt like, eh, I'm I'm counting down the days until I'm done with this job. Randy Sanders was always leaving after He was literally counting down the days. Yes, he had it on a whiteboard in his office how many days were left in This is really a secret. This is multiple people I know heard about it, too. Like, he had a whiteboard saying... But Damien is... Jimbo's dude. Mm -hmm. And every which way, you can't say something negative about Damien to Jimbo Fisher. Okay. So I'm going to go a little bit out of order and go to Randy Sanders coaching quarterbacks because we're talking about Randy. Randy, well-respected quarterback coach. Um, Guy knows what he's talking about. He's not going to be a recruiter. He's not, you know, he's not going to coach a ton of stuff. But that position is his thing. Was he originally hired to coach running backs? No. I know there was a couple of vacancies. I don't believe so. Okay. I was trying to remember. I believe he was always quarterbacks. But he had ties to Jay from Jay's. Time at Tennessee. Tennessee, and then he brought Jay with them, and Jay coached running backs. But regardless, having Randy Sanders coaching quarterbacks, like that's a guy you want coaching your quarterbacks. The issue is someone's talent, again, like you said, Chris, is X and O's, a guy who's going to be able to work with quarterbacks, be a, a, a common influence, uh, kind of I feel like is undercut when you have Jimbo Fisher as the main quarterback coach and the main play caller. Uh, so basically you have a guy who's not a great recruiter as a assistant coach, like an assistant assistant coach, if that makes sense. Like he's not the main guy in that room any given time when he's, you know, when Jimbo's in there. He's and then taking you had, sec- you second had Damien as yeah, a third Damien element to, yep. to that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it, it just kind of, again, not maximizing your assets on the coaching staff there. Uh, and again, I think you mentioned some of the chemistry issues. Those became pretty evident late in the, late in the 2017 campaign. Uh, number eight, I'll switch him around. Brad Line, again, chemistry. Chemistry being an issue. Uh, Brad Line, listen, his work with pass rushers is well documented. Yeah, his X's and O's abilities off the charts. I, I loved watching him coach more than any other coach. The way he explained things quickly, digestible, um, it's funny. Demarcus Walker's probably not playing in the NFL if, or definitely not a top you know, two round draft pick if Brad Line doesn't come here and those two connect like they did. Um, he's also been credited with helping Jadavion Clowney, although, you know, Jadavion Clowney was probably going to be all right, regardless of who was coaching him. Regardless, Lon was a guy that you took a chance on um, because you knew he had some baggage in terms of just being a guy who doesn't really stay at a staff for a really long time and kind of moves around. Um, and someone who hasn't had an upward trajectory, he's just a position coach. Um, but you kind of add that to the mix, and there's risk for reward, and it paid off until it didn't. In this past year, man, it was really – he was just – an absentee member of the staff, right? Contentious. Yeah. Um, him and Charles didn't have a good relationship, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a secret. Um, and it became very public at times, from what I understand, and that's not good. That's mm-hmm. not good for anybody. When you have infighting with coaches, it's not going to help you be a better football team. Mm-hmm. You're a family, and families fight sometimes. But sometimes they also need to shut the hell up and just coach. And was it after the Duke game? Yes. You saw him go down by himself to the yeah. field, which uh, that that's very rare. Now, maybe there's a reason for it, but to me that seemed pretty crystallized. The other problem with Brad was that the recruiting, recruiting from him pretty, yeah. went off the rails down the stretch. I mean, 
He just went with tall length and got kind of lazy, it looked like. Janarius was a guy that Charles Kelly very much recruited, and the staff was going to get pretty much mm-hmm. no matter what because he wanted to be at FSU. And Kando was a good get, but I don't really think Brad was even a primary there. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad was involved with Kando. I'm not completely selling him out on that one, but I don't think he was a primary. I don't think he's the main reason Joshua Kando wears Garner and Gold. You look at some of the other guys he was pursuing or that he took or that he wanted, and it's uh, a position's kind of somewhat thin. Now, he did land Brian Burns, and he was a huge piece of that because mm-hmm. of the pre-existing relationship with that family. So, you know, there's a flip side to that, too. But long-term, the recruiting last year at defensive end was dumb. Yeah. I mean, it was, we came out of summer, and me and Josh both were – Josh Newberg were both dumbfounded by where they were sitting at that position. There's one of the angriest I've seen, there, Josh. There were people within the offices at FSU in the recruiting meetings, in the coaching staff, who didn't get what the hell they were doing at defensive end. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a bad thing. They didn't, help, they didn't offer Malcolm Lamar, right, that stuff? Correct, which really chapped Malcolm Lamar's ass. I mean, no shoot. Like, <laughs> they went – he was the best defensive end. They went with the second best defensive end on that team, and it was a pretty wide margin. Uh, but they did offer Chaz Neal. That's what I'm saying. As a defensive end. Yeah. Yeah. When he's gone, probably have more of a chance of being halfway decent as an offensive tackle. He was horrible on film as a defensive end. Other than being tall yeah. and somewhat athletic, if you watch that film of that kid at defensive end, no, it's not there. He's not a D1 level prospect on that film outside of measurables and athleticism. So maybe you thought you were taking a piece of Play-Doh and you were going to mold some Mona Lisa out of it, but... Which nah, is fun you're because, FSU. You don't need to mold. You well, can go get really good ready-made players. And you can do that every couple of years. They just did that with Trey Lawson the year before. They took a guy who was tall. And Trey's and, not close to being ready to contribute at a high level. Correct. And also a better, much better high school player than yes. Chaz Neal was based on what we saw in highlights and film and whatnot. All right. Pass the coaches. That was a, uh, there was a lot of dead weight towards the end. And I think, man... It's interesting now, looking as the kind of dust settles, who Jimbo brought with him to Texas A&M and who he didn't, kind of, to me, paints a pretty clear picture of how he valued those guys. The fact he was so adamant and going to bat for them all the time, I think at one point is kind of commendable, but at the He took part, Brewster, an ace recruiter, at a position where coaching is kind of, eh, you don't need to be a great coach mm-hmm. to be a tight end coach, in my opinion. And he took Jay Graham, who's an excellent dude, great guy, jumped on that job very quickly, mm-hmm. and is a good running backs coach, in my opinion, mm-hmm. but... That man, I don't want him touching my special teams. <laughs> um, but yeah, then he took Damien, who is his guy. Yeah. Um, and Damien's already paid off by getting James Foster and mm-hmm. Tank Jenkins, and that's what Damien does. Yeah. Damien's going to help you get Jimmy and Joe's. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if he really helps you with X's and O's. Well, that was kind of Jimbo's thing when he, that's what he was successful at Florida State initially, is they stockpile talent with, by getting really, like you mentioned earlier, Chris, badass recruiters. Guys who go out and get you and be competitive. Know what you're going to be and go be it. Yeah. And early on, FSU was that. They were young. They were energetic. They were aggressive as hell. And they they were kind of kind of hit the trail and let you know they were out there doing what they are going to do. And then the latter part of the years here, they were supposed to be a better coaching staff from a coaching standpoint. They weren't. And then that's where an issue uh, that that's, that's problematic. You have guys who are supposed to be the X and O's and the gurus, and it doesn't materialize that way. Then you go to Boston College on a Friday night and get run out of Chestnut Hill. Ooh, they didn't quit. <laughs> Did quit. Very much so. <laughs> All right, next one. Uh, real, real quick, one point. Who sure. from that previous staff moved upwards? Randy Sanders became head coach at ETSU, which I think he could, yeah, that's home for him. But who else? That was a good landing spot for yeah. Randy. Um, 
And again, I'm happy for. But Charles Kelly goes from being a defensive coordinator back to at position FSU coach. To, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, Bill Jay, Miller. Jay maintained the same job. Bill Miller maintained the same job. Bill's at Kansas, I believe. That's right. And that staff's going to all lose their job probably before the season ends. So Rick Bill will be Trickett. on to his 32nd job in 35 years. Aww. Rick Trickett isn't anywhere. Brad Lawlin's not anywhere, to my knowledge. Rick Trickett's not anywhere. Rick does want to do some more coaching, from what I understand. Vic Valoria um, is not a... Vic is an assistant yeah. strength and conditioning, I want to say, at LSU again, which is just tied to Tommy Moffitt. He came from that system. Everybody tries to hire guys that work with Tommy or are tied to Tommy, thinking they're Tommy and... They're not. Jimbo tried copying um, something Nick Saban. Anybody oh. else? No. Who else is there? Who are we forgetting? No, I think that's it. Dossie? Where's Dossie? Did you mention Dossie? Dossie's hanging out with his wife, to my knowledge. So, we'll just let that speak for itself. Uh, moving to number nine. You made this point when we were somewhere around Troy, Alabama. Scheme over sensibility. A... Uh, a a dedication to schemes that that Jimbo wanted his team to run. It's fine. You want to have an identity. You want your team to be good at something. You're going to try to implement it and coach it. That's what that's what this game is about. No, it doesn't, no, no, no. Well, the game's about winning. But, well, the game yes. is about winning. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you put a W on the board. You do need to have an identity. And if you're you obsessed to... with being the smartest person in the room... <laughs> And so simply trying to get the W, mm-hmm. then you have seasons like last year. Yeah, you need to have bread and butter, but when you're reluctant to go to it, that's where it becomes problematic. Yes, of course, of course. And Jimbo Fisher thought he was the smartest man in the room regardless Everyone. of the room he's in. Um, and we'll get to some of the other uh, some of the other philosophical things that just didn't make a lot of sense. But you know, we, we talked about a little bit earlier, Chris, the whole pattern matching defense, uh, the dedication to that when this group was telling you if not verbally, just through their actions and the way they played, that they weren't getting it. That that secondary was not comfortable in that. That you were bringing in these badass five-star recruits, and they were just draining confidence playing that system, and they were feeling. You could just tell, like Tavares McFadden shouldn't digress, like as he did. Uh, he he shouldn't. Uh, Derwin James, having uh, being a badass as a freshman, and then I know he had the knee injury, but then just looking, he was fine as a as a junior. Was one of the best safeties in the. Country, but but never seemed to be that dominant guy uh, that we thought he was going to become. Uh, guys just didn't fit in that scheme, and for whatever reason, the coach was too stubborn to move away from it and just let them play football. Yep. And again, as we kind of, I think if, if you want to run that scheme, go get the guy that can run that scheme. Yeah. Well, they had it, and then they lost him. Kinda Don't say I want you to run this. And then that guy looks at you and goes, okay, I'll try coach. No, get the guy who's like, okay, I'll excel at this. I know what I'm doing. Coaches weren't comfortable coaching it. Players weren't comfortable playing in it. At a certain point, that trickles up to the top of the food chain. That's on the coach, the head coach, for basically forcing that. And teams exploited it week after week after week for a couple years. Was it the Athlon Preview Magazine had... A coach from the opposing coach. coaching sources. Yeah, which is always fun and did something on it. And I didn't make a huge deal out of it. I mentioned it, but basically he said, you know, their defense just hasn't been playing aggressively for years. And guys in our league have been, I think, quote-unquote, running, running wide open for years now. I don't love to ever point to Twitter for anything because I hate social media. God, I sound like Jimbo when I say that. I don't know. I don't know Twitter. But I, every I week after a game, somebody, actually a lot of somebodies, would post – Pictures of a third and six with the DB 12 yards off. 
and that being the closest person to said wide receiver that then caught the seven-yard pattern for a first down. And it was just like, Jesus, like the common man sees this. Mm-hmm. You're getting paid a lot of money in an office with a lot of smart people who coach a lot of football, and you're allowing it to persist week after week after week after week. Not to mention you're going to get gas shot in the metal and burn on the seam because that's what you do. Uh, on the other side of the ball too, man, like a reluctance to go with tempo, which like statistically, like there's really smart people that have shown like that's actually an ad- advantageous for a team that has a, an advantage in talent. Uh, more plays gives you more chances to be better than the team with less talent. If you're Florida State, you're going to have more Or to run plays that developed quickly instead of running plays that took six to eight seconds with an offensive line that was relatively mediocre, if not awful, and quarterbacks that were young and inexperienced. I mean, I did something on James Blackman the other day from the PFF stats that we had. When he, when he had less than two and a half seconds to throw the ball, he was the – or when he got rid of the ball, sorry. This is very to... therapeutic. You're right. I'm so glad I did it. Are you? Or are you being no, sarcastic? No, I'm being oh. completely sarcastic. <laughs> are you just getting more angry? <laughs> no, I'm not angry. Uh, but then we're done. We don't have to ever talk about it again. I say that now. Uh, but James Blackman was significantly better. He was the best quarterback in the ACC when he got rid of the ball in less than two and a half seconds. When he held on the ball for more than two and a half seconds, he was the worst quarterback. Plays that were designed with a specific purpose and intended yep. target worked well for a young quarterback that was inexperienced behind a bad offensive line. I'm shocked by this. The the Duke game, it was crazy. Like that was the best coached game of the year in terms of just having a game plan that tailored itself to your quarterback, and they just went away from it. They did, it worked well, and they just it bogged down one or two series, and they went away from it the rest of the freaking season. God forbid you try to run a read pass or run pass option. Like, like their version of that is just roll DeAndre Francois out to the right, and maybe he runs it, maybe he throws it. Screen passes are runs, not like the NFL. Oh, well, that's going to be later. That's going to okay, be later. Yes, that, okay. but not today. Yeah, but Jimbo Fisher saying that screen passes and runs are the same thing is stupid. How about this one? Eliminate the clutter. A phrase of Jimbo, a Jimboism, if you will, that he used. For years, uh, basically telling his players to cut off the outside distractions, whether that's toxic family members, girlfriends, media members, focus on school, healthy family, football. Um, but when it mattered, the coach himself couldn't practice what he preached. And when you look at the nosedive that this football program endured, a lot of it, man was him just unable to eliminate criticism of his program, uh, reports that you know maybe he was done with his coaching staff. He became uh, aggressive, well, not aggressive, verbally aggressive with media members, confrontational, I guess. Told a fan, bring your ass down here and say <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> just not a healthy way to go about life and... When you have someone that's the figurehead of an organization, which is how we wanted this football program to be. One voice. Yep. It trickles down and becomes toxic for everyone. Um, And I think it gave a glimpse into the dysfunction of the program. Right? Okay. Moving on. General distrust of the media. Oh, he he didn't trust. Other than those that put their nose so far up his ass that, you know, they would only say what he wanted them to say. He didn't trust most people in the media. And he, you know, whatever, I get it. There's going to be people that are like, oh, the media is out to get him. No, the media wasn't out to get him. The media got sick and tired of dealing with him. And therefore, things that were there that should be written about that were of a negative tone were written about. 
You create. He created his own media monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did, and it got it. So some of it, I understand. You don't want to give us players, and we still have to fill content to our front page. You know what we're going to write about? Your team. And if, and your, if team's your team's not, not very well. good, we're going to have to write about how they're not doing very well. It is a natural course of how this works. Yeah. He's a smart enough man that I would presume he understands that. I think he just did not care. He'd much rather stand up there at the podium when he did decide to show up for his actual media times when, you know, FSU did their job. And he would have his moments of, you know, I'm going to fire off some bullets at you guys and throw them over your head and ask people in this room questions and ask, you know, hey, Gene, hey, Ira, hey, Chris, hey, Corey, hey, whoever I'm going to ask in this room questions. Now, boss, we're not there to answer questions. We're there to ask them and for you to answer them. You're the one in the room who's getting paid a lot of money to run a football program. Yeah. And, you know, when, when, that, when that stuff would happen last year, I think some readers at least would want us to play back with that. No, that's not our no, job. That's not what we're paid to do. We're supposed to be basically asked the questions. That like, hour in the media room for me on yeah. Mondays last year became the biggest waste of an hour of my life every week. Mm-hmm. Because it was a waste of time to, one, ask questions because you weren't going to get any answers of substance. Mm-hmm. Two, if you went back and forth with the man, you weren't going to win. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to stand there and let you win. He wasn't asking and questions And three, I'm not there answers. to beat my chest and get in an argument with yeah. – you know, guy running a football program. I'm there to ask questions. I much more prefer about, hey, is so-and-so going to be able to play this week because of an ankle sprain he suffered on Saturday? What was the extent of that? Or why was this play run? I care much more about that than any other mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. And then even just the this, this grudge. And it, some of it, man, I kind of understood why he was tepid with the media. The 2014 coverage of Jameis Winston uh, – but the vast majority of the media he dealt with on a weekly basis were not the individuals as that I've been in this industry, ran around with stakes and fire. I know, but I've, as, the longer I've been in doing this for, oh God, almost too long now, almost 10 years, um, people have a hard time differentiating like what you do versus what someone nationally does. It all kind of blends together, what a block does. Like it all kind of, a lot of people do. Um, and I think he kind of painted with a broad brush and didn't like a lot of media members. Um, and that's fine. Like, that's your prerogative. You don't have to, but you at least have to have a decent working relationship. And in kicking media members out of practice to basically you can't see anything anymore, uh, one, it sets a weird tone, I think, within your own program, like this weird secretive and us against the world mentality, which can be healthy until it's not. Uh, Tell me what the rules are, and I'll live by the rules. Yeah, don't change But if the I'm rules. standing there shooting video I'm allowed to shoot and you want to dog cuss me, I'm not really about that. It's not going to make me really, you know, be on your side. Sorry, boss. That's me who got yeah, did you enjoy that? Uh, no, no, not really. It was kind of, it was just weird. Uh, but you know, cutting cutting the media out of your life cuts the fans out of your life. I think that's the one thing that you know during this past couple of years with all the you know fake news became so prevalent. Um, people became so distrusting the media and the public that you forget that sometimes the media is your bridge to information. And to plus, if you stand up there and constantly lie. You know, it gets old after a while. What I ended up doing late last year was he was just rambling about, like, you know, Tavares McFadden returning punts. And some of the, the things oh, he was saying were just memories. so factually incorrect <laughs> um, that I wasn't going to stand in there and just do, like, a fact-check dispute. I was just going to let his – I just started let letting his him, words do it for him. Instead himself, of using yeah. just two sentences and ellipses to kind of get to the point, which you would normally do if you had space restrictions because that guy rambled on. I would just put in a block paragraph of quotes, since you guys go ahead. This is what this you're is paying what millions saying. of dollars to to coach your football program. Yeah. So I just I don't understand. I, I don't care if he liked us or not. That doesn't matter. A lot of coaches don't like the people they have to work with in the media. 
there's a matter of going about your business and doing it in some manner that's at least reasonably decent. Mm-hmm. And he failed to do that down the stretch. Yeah. When a question is asked of you, either say, I don't want to answer that, I can't answer that, or answer it. Don't give me some bullshit. And I, like, for me personally, like, I, I was probably too snarky sometimes. And as earlier on, even like in 2013, I was a cup reporter, I was probably too snarky. And, and, and you know, that's not to say that we but were But he liked to blame. trade snark in his yes. earlier days. Yeah. It was when things weren't going well for him here that suddenly if you had a moment of that sort, and I'm not saying you should be that way, there's a professional manner to go about it. Mm-hmm. But if you were that way, it just it went south so quickly. It was there was nothing you could do about it. There were so many instances where simple questions were asked and the answers were not provided, mm-hmm. and it caused so many more issues than if you just gave the simple answer. Yeah, yep. It was it was an unhealthy way to deal with not just us in the media, but and when your you fan win a, when you win a public. game to get to five hundred, you don't walk into the press conference <laughs> and just start firing off bullets at the media <laughs> members. You just don't do it. You you go in there, you talk about the game, you answer questions. Maybe you have a barber or two. It's not uh, like him against us. It shouldn't be that. And it reached a point where I think both sides some felt that that was how it was last year. Uh, the things that we were writing about them were far more tame than the things that were being spewed on the message board. But that's that. Yeah. Or the fact that fans quit showing up. Yeah, that was telling too. Yeah, you can't you can't beat Which Syracuse no on a blocked field goal and then come in and basically be like Generation X throwing the, the X over the crotch. You, just, you can't you can't do it. It's a bad look. Bad look. Weird. Weird. Weird ending. What the hell? Twelve. Player discretion, general accountability. Player discretion. Uh, this was uh, DeAndre Francois was injured, obviously, early on last season. Uh, sidelined with a season-ending knee injury, but not really technically sidelined because you have to be on the sideline to be sidelined. And uh, it was senior day, and he wasn't there. He was classic. Mm-hmm. He was down, down, presumably, looked like based on Snapchat or wherever the social media was down to watching the, the – Florida Classic. Florida Classic between Tammy Bethune-Cookman and Orlando instead of at the game with his team. Uh, something that seemed to be a pretty large indictment on culture. When Jimbo Fisher was asked, you know, does he have a rule for players uh, that are injured to 10 games or is it player discretion? Jimbo said player discretion and that was it. Internally, I heard that drove people crazy. Just assistants, staffers, whatever, kind of as much as there was presumably chemistry issues, that was so eye-opening of how toxic the culture was, how little accountability there was throughout the football program. Uh, the fact that it was allowed to happen, the fact then that the coach didn't go ahead and cut it off and, and say, you know, that, that ain't going to happen on my watch. Kind of like what Willie Taggart's done. Um, 18 to 22-year-olds are young men. They should be allowed to have free will and go about doing some things themselves. But if they are part of a team or a program or something specific as a football team, there's rules, and those rules should be lived by. And there, there's a balancing act that has to be had. And for whatever reason, the balance supposedly went towards the players where they could do what they want. I'm not entirely convinced that that's the true manner of how that played out. I think it was more covering for those guys or empowering those guys to a level that was faulty. Mm-hmm. And it caused issues. It caused internal issues among players, mm-hmm. unhappy with what some were allowed to do and others were not. And yeah. It, it's not a good way to operate it. And the inability to harbor a happy, positive culture after seemingly getting and there. Let's not act like Jimbo is the king of free will. The man is very much it's my way or the highway. Yeah. I, it just it was so weird, and it got worse and worse and worse, and it's almost like it became the excuse he would go to, but I'm not sure it's truly what well, he wanted. It was his way or the highway by. on the football field, but it's become apparently clearer in hindsight, and now more time to kind of look back and more people talking, that it wasn't a whole lot of structure 
at least in the past few years, um, within that football program. It, it just it seemed like they were kind of allowed to do what they wanted to do. And that's why you have the summer program fall off like it did. Yes. It's why you have things falter. It's why when you have one loss, it suddenly becomes two or three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we've heard rumors, and I can't confirm it, but I've just, I won't name names, but key players getting in fights with other key players in the offseason because they weren't showing up. Yep. And this wasn't just, you know, some slappy that wasn't going to be a contributor. We're talking about major key components to your team not showing up to, you know, summer seven-on-sevens or lifting. Man, that's just, it's not a... When you talk about a healthy culture... Whatever semblance of it they had that allowed them to win a bunch of games, uh, tailed off. And, and I almost feel like part of it, man, kind of came after they won it in 2013. There seemed to be like there was, well, there was a lot of off-field stuff that happened uh, that I wonder, you know, with, with Jameis, with Dalvin Cook, and, and Jimbo gave them all chances those and went teams, to bat for them. Those earlier Jimbo teams were much more cohesive family units yeah. who bat, came to bat for one another. Mm-hmm than the groups we dealt with in the last 24 to 36 months. It became clear that Jimbo was going to go to bat for the stars. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's college football. I remember but was... white-knuckling the uh, podium, talking about Jameis, mm-hmm. and how passionate he was about that. I get Jameis is kind of the extreme circumstance with yeah. Jimbo because he was such his guy, but he was that way for a vast majority of those guys, and we saw that here and there with guys in recent years. Matthew Thomas is one mm-hmm. he regularly went to bat for. You know, He covered Matthew Thomas being kind of – I mean, it's nicely a screw-up in many ways who kept putting himself in a predicament yeah. that almost cost him his college career. But Jimbo kept kind of trying to soften that blow and dance away from it. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like he picked and chose who he did mm-hmm. that for, and it seems like it wasn't across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 13, as we go on to more just, just weird chemistry, um, Promise letters, remember those? <laughs> if you're going to do it, it needs to stay completely within the team. <laughs> you shouldn't know. You should... I, if that shit ever gets, if that's even something that crosses your mind as a coach, it's like one of those things like I've heard before. Like if you have to go to marriage counseling, like if you have to go to marriage counseling, it's too far gone. This isn't a preemptive. Oh, we should go. And this is just healthy. If you're having to go because shit's not right, ninety nine percent of the time, like you have a lot of baggage and a lot of things that you have to kind of deal with, and it's tough to get. Yeah. How did we that. get to this? Point? Not that I'm saying people shouldn't go to therapy if, if need. I think that's healthy. How did we get to this point yeah. is more concerning than the fact that, you know, hey, we're going to try to turn it around. Yeah. But so the promise letters that we're referring to are in the 2016 season after their 3-2 and two start. And um, this was basically um, players were asked to sign promise notes to say they will try harder and they will play harder. And, you know. Won't loaf. For a oh – yeah, that was after the loafing of, uh, of the UNC game. Say his name. Say his name. Attitude of dominance. This was a slogan that Jimbo used in 2014 to basically say we're not defending the national championship. We are going out to win another one. And uh, you know, maybe this was, in, in, again, in hindsight, the beginning of the end. He had all his talent. You had almost everyone back from that national championship team. And you had probably 10 games that were with you know, were decisive you know, or could be decided within the fourth quarter. Uh, everything was a struggle. Everything yeah. was just a constant struggle uh, where nothing was, was easy as it should be. One week the offense looked great and the defense just couldn't figure stuff out. And the next week the defense would carry the team and the offense couldn't figure things out. It was, to me, again, looking at a polarizing moment of or a polarizing season that showed 
uh, want a failure to, again, maximize the talent that you had and beginning seeping in of chemistry issues of guys not playing hard for each other, of guys basically thinking they were entitled to win, uh, which is everything that kind of that 2013 season went against, where they just went out and snatched it from people. A lot of miscues occurred, occurred week over week, but because of the fact that they came out with Ws, which is the most important thing, but they, because they came out with Ws, they kind of were glanced over instead of being corrected in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it, that that's a negative thing. Because at some point, the guys that allow you to dig out of that hole that you regularly put yourself into, they go to the NFL. Mm-hmm. And the next guy who's never been that moment of having to dig out of that hole but knows the program has done it previously thinks because they're wearing that uniform and mm-hmm. they're part of that program that they saw you can do it. Nah, you can't. You know, the guys that know how to do it, who have done it, who somehow did it week after week after week, they're gone. You have to be something different. And yeah, I think kind of set a bad downward slope for them. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's tough to climb the mountain repeatedly. The very few can do it. Back to back is yeah. one of those incredibly difficult things for schools to pull off if they're not named, you know, Alabama. Mm-hmm. But there were there were glaring issues with that team that were very much glossed over by media, by the team, by everybody. Because of the fact that they came out with W's mm-hmm. so often. Yeah, it it set a it, it set a course for entitlement, I think, throughout the program. Just like you said, Chris, an assumption that you can get it done no matter what, uh, without really knowing how to how to win. Uh, that's something that 2013 team kind of had to learn how to win and had some close calls and then figured it out. The best thing that 2013 was was that that team was supposed to be almost a year off in many people's estimation, mm-hmm. and they started that year not very well. No, and then it all clicked. And when it clicked, they were unbelievable. That second half of BC or the, yeah. I guess, even the second quarter of BC. Yeah. But it's just so such a weird thing that sometimes it all comes together. And at the same time, the flip side of that, sometimes it all falls apart, which is what we very much saw during the 2017 campaign. All right. Point number 15. We're almost on an hour here, but we're making good time. A season with. <laughs> you don't like the media. You don't like distractions, but you let an entire TV crew into your program for a year to do a TV show. I just, I, I don't get that. I mean, there was there was a correlation between the and know, having those people there and the they big spoke glory to Notre, deal. They spoke to Notre Dame, who had had it the previous yeah. season. And Notre Dame was very upfront that you know they they treat you well. They do a good job. They're good people to producers. Mm-hmm. All the people that are involved with a season with are professionals, but it's a nuisance. Nope. I think Jimbo liked that it made Brian Kelly look like a decent dude. Honestly, I think he was like, all right, that'll make me come off like a nice guy. Um, I just don't get you, you. You're very much a fan of an orderly system, limited media opportunities. Our program's closed most of this time. Practices are very much shut down, and you let TV cameras yeah, in there constantly. It, just, it goes against how you've done everything up to that point in your program. And. And I, it was enjoyable for fans and people to get an inside view, and I get why they did it. And it sells the program in some way. If they were really Remember good Remember the episode year. about the band? Well, at that point, the season <laughs> had gone to, you know, what? No offense, Marching Chiefs. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they did a whole episode about, I believe it was a band and the cheerleaders in yeah. the same episode, if I recall correctly. And that's because the season had gone so off the tracks already. It was kind of a weird timing because that was the NC State game, I think, and they were kind of starting to turn it around a little bit at that point. I don't know. It was just a weird... I just I don't get doing a TV show beyond wanting the coverage and the you know selling to recruits. Florida State, like how much? Yeah. uh, But but I will say, uh, in addition to just not making sense because it's counterintuitive to where what Jimbo Fisher had previously kind of 
preached, or at least... For the record, Navy's the best season of that show. Okay, see, I stopped watching that. Navy was good. I watched the one I had to. But um, to me, it showed a lack of awareness of his his team. Like, to bring the cameras to something that was as fragile as it was, to bring them in and add those pervasive, invasive... I mean, that's that's tough. Like when you have a camera in your face, you know from being in the media, like it's it's it makes you act different. Um, so to throw off any fragile ecosystem, uh, to not know that your ecosystem, I guess, was that fragile, and to add that element to the mix, didn't make a lot of sense to me uh, in hindsight. Remember Derwin James talking to Jimbo when when he was injured on the sideline, and Jimbo asking Derwin like, how do I basically how do I reach these kids? Like how do I how do I get to them? I was like, man, it's like that's. That's damning. There were a lot of moments of that you know, show I thought that were pretty revealing um, and showed just that, that Jimbo was letting things slip through his fingers uh, quick, quicker than I thought. I, I didn't think it would bottom out that quickly. And, and there was some, they, they kind of figured things out that year in 2016, but there were moments in that show uh, that, that one displayed that they were kind of letting things fall through the cracks and probably nothing was more evident of that than just <laughs> allowing the actual show there. It just... It showed a lack of awareness of where your program was and what it needed at that time. If you're going to let people behind the curtain, be sure you know what's behind the curtain. I mean, you wouldn't have let them there if he, if he knew that was going to be a 3-2 and two start in a shit show, right? You know what I mean? Like, it just shows, like, how badly he didn't, like, judge what, what was there. All right, this one I know will get you fired up to talk about <laughs> a little bit last week. Do you have a list in front of you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Timing. Timing with messages for facility upgrades. You don't do it when your team is 500 or sub-500 in the middle of the season. One, it's not going to happen at that point. And two, it's just not the message you send at that point. You know, it, it's like if you're going if you're on a political rally and you go to a tour stop, you're not going to talk about this other message if you're trying to get this thing done here and there. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's foolish. And yes, facility upgrades are a constant thing. The arms race is never ending. Does FSU need to do it? No doubt. Do they need to do a good job of it? Yes. If you're going to do it, do a good job. It's kind of the mantra. But understand when to deliver that message. You can't take it. You can't belittle what was already been done when people put their money yeah, towards he, it. Like, he I also, he, in my opinion, undersold the effort FSU had made since his arrival mm-hmm. of advancing the program which is probably the greatest thing beyond winning a national title Jimbo Fisher did for FSU, was he took it from the Bowden era mm-hmm. to a new era of football, mm-hmm. which is a very important thing. He forced people to open their pocketbooks to spend money. I have no issue with that. I'm glad he did that. I think for the long-term positivity of the program, longevity of the program, it's excellent that he did that. It's understanding when to go back to that message, and he picked the wrong times in recent years. So... Moving on to number 17, general tension with the athletic department and boosters. Um, listen, like, there's going to be if, tensions that arise. If you, if you want boosters to give money, yeah, yeah give them a little something too. you got to be nice to them. Um, and then even within the athletic department, I knew that tensions were high Like at the end of you know, 2017, I like, guess it was March in there, but I thought at the time, and I was wrong, that they could fix some of the the bridges that had been been broken. I, I didn't think it was beyond repair, but I was wrong. Like, man, it, like, it was so, it soured to the point of when Jimbo left, the amount of relief you felt throughout that athletic department, and it was just, everything felt cathartic afterwards. There was so much pressure was gone that this, this man had pretty much soured hundreds of people and, and made everyone scared. And that, and that, 
in the Morris Center. It was within it was Florida weird. State, not solely athletics. University athletics. Who was Jimbo Fisher's best friend? Who was the most outspoken person? President Thrasher. And who I had mean, maybe the biggest statement upon Jimbo leaving? Well, basically, that's something that adults I mean, couldn't when he told the toss and Emmer Crow was. I mean, that that to me kind of. Exactly? I don't I don't remember the quote, but I mean Thrasher basically throwing Jimbo under the bus as he walked out the door to me is. It's incredible because mm-hmm. Thrasher was such a pro Jimbo guy who beat the drum hard when he asked for money. He he got out there and stumped for money. Mm-hmm. He did those things. And he was done with it at the end, and mm-hmm. yeah, he was the extreme of the person that was willing to tolerate a lot of it, willing to put up with it, willing to be comfortable with the situation. There were a lot of people that were way fed up with it way beforehand, and from a working standpoint, dealing with the people that we deal with on a daily basis to cover the football program. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how much happier those people are post-Jimbo yeah. than they were the last 24 months under Jimbo. People... And he didn't treat those people well. No, no. Uh, I think Wayne had said this to me before, and it was uh, kind of a, a clarifying moment, but basically, you are judged by not how you treat the people that you need to treat well, but the people you don't have to do anything with how are you on a day-to-day interaction with the lower people in your life basically regardless of where you where you stand and um that's not to say jimbo actually did a really lot of really nice things and was really charitable in a lot yeah. of ways but professionally he was an sob man like he, he just he was and he wore down most of the people he worked with when you're winning uh that's tolerated um and you saw how quickly when you stop winning man the bottom falls out real quick because people don't like to be treated poorly you know, um, and and I think people did their jobs out scared, and I think the football team played scared. And that all to me is an indictment on the head coach. He was a fearful man uh, and did a lot of things out of fear and anger. Next one, summer conditioning. I think we covered that in the big portion. Yeah, I mean, look at Dontavious Jackson. Look at Cole Minshew. Look at Marvin Wilson. It's easy to do like stories on. Guys slimming down and, you know, a new weight program and a new, you know, brand new era. I'm, like, flexing my muscles right now. I've been working out, by the way. Can you notice? No. Uh, um, but it shouldn't be happening this quickly. Like, we're seeing physical transformation in, like, three or four months. That's fairly damning. All right, number 19, bring your ass down here and say that. We talked about that. But, man, I've coached, threatened a fan to come down and fight. Like, a head coach. Were you on the field when it happened? No, I wasn't. I think I was having to finish up riding something. I, uh... I want to say it was Smitter. Smitter Gary, was there because he's in Smith, the video. Gary Smith from uh, Jackson.com. Um, I want to say he walked into the press conference room, the team meeting room, where we meet with Jimbo and players after a game, mm-hmm. and uh, was talking about it. And some had seen it occur on the field. I think Joe Radone, Radoni from uh, I think he had a Democrat photo. had a picture, yeah. and he quoted saying, bring your ass down here and say that. And you would see Smitter in the video. It was just amazing to like watch it. I'm so disappointed I didn't get to see it in person. I right know, I know. Uh, but there's video, um, and you can't really hear what Jimbo's saying in it. But you can see him bark back at the fan. Fans get out of control sometimes and do things. But as a coach, and truthfully as an athlete, most times I think you have to just walk away from it. And if you're going to have that moment, you need to understand where you are. Like NBA players doing it on the road to an opposing crowd. It's cool to me. The head coach doing it to the home crowd in the stadium of a team that's under 500, and it's not going to fly. And not to even bark back, but to throw – like, what if the fan took him up on it? Like, can you imagine yeah, like, the, yeah. the legal ramifications of that? Malice in the palace becomes what? What would be a great thing called in Doke? Come on. Do you get the Doke? No, um, that's boring. 
Uh, you're the one who put me on the spot here. Good thing we're not paid to be two blokes fighting in dope or something. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know. You know, what? I feel like we're just getting to the part where this is therapeutic, but the first like 20, 30 minutes of this has stressed me out a lot. It was we should have had Bob come in for number 20, debt. <laughs> it's arguably Bob's favorite time if, in the program. If I was thinking about, I thought about this two or three days ago. If I was better at producing these, I would just bring Bob in for the special teams ones and bring him back out in yeah. and out. I thought that would have been funny, but I I would just screw up the uh, the so file. Number twenty is debt, and this it's is a the last quote one. Case on Beatty. Yeah, debt. So this is I was twenty fourteen. This is my second season with the program. This is my first time being like, oh man, Jimbo's kind of an ass to like some people. Uh, he was asked about the, the punching woes uh, under Casey Beatty, and they'd kind of been going on for that early part of the season. Uh, and he wasn't great in 2013. was one of the few weaknesses. Uh, and someone had asked him, you know, what else are you looking at, at, at you know, for punters? And here's the quote from Jim. So, guys, if it was different, I would put somebody else in there, which is pretty direct for, for him. You know, usually coach speak, but, you know, that's fair. So you got any problems at home? Anybody got debt? <laughs> Everybody has... Got things in your going on in your life? Why don't you just go and erase it? You compare a college football player to, to having debt, um, which is hilarious. To being debt. To being debt, yes. And then trying to erase it, basically. Um, in, in all fairness to Jimbo, like when Casey Beatty turned things around, Jimbo said, like, he was he praised him and said, I was hard on him, uh, harder than most. So, yeah, I think that's important, but... One, it just didn't make a lot of sense. We're talking about things of what It's just are. an awesome quote. I yeah, it's one of the best quotes that, that you're going to get. I was there for that one. I enjoyed yeah. that one. And it's really mean to a poor kid that's like punting. You know what I mean? Um, but, so anyways, was this uh, was this therapeutic for you at all in the least? Not even the end. You're I'm smiling good. I'm now. good with it. I'm, I'm just glad it's over. What's your favorite steak restaurant not in Omaha? Oh, non-drover? Oh. Like, where would you go? Let's say, where would you go if you were within, like, like a road trip here with the ACC footprint to get a steak? I ate at a place in, near Chapel Hill, but not on Franklin Street. But I cannot remember the name of it. Um, it had, like, a Cape Cod-ish, New Hampshire, North, New England-type theme to it. It had really good seafood. We'd actually eaten there before for seafood, but I had a steak and it was very oh, good. Oh, I remember you telling me about that. But I can't remember the name of the joint. There's a there's not really a great steak place in Tallahassee, right? Like, I've never been to Shula's. I guess that's probably not fair. It's I mean, I enjoy Shula's, but no, I'd much rather make my own steak at home. Um, you can, the price, the yeah. Drover is an incredible steak. It's the best steak I've ever had. But I much prefer to cook my own steak. Mm-hmm. One, I can cook it the right way. You know, when you say medium rare and it comes out well done, I'm not a fan of that life. I want, my, I want. I like want. I don't want it still mooing, but I want it to be. You know, it just recently died. You know, what's a good steak. Is, uh, the ribeye over at Cypress. No, they don't do a lot of steak. I think that's the only steak on the menu. But it's one of the best meals in town. There's fried onion rings on it. And are you hungry? Yes, I'm doing this thing called intermittent. We're fasting. not dressed for the Cypress, though. Um, oh no, the Cypress. You can go. It's also like 10:30 in the morning too, but. I'm doing this thing called intermittent fasting where you can't eat until like noon. I don't fast. Have you looked at me? Chris Chris is smiling. Um, I feel a little bit bad about peer pressuring him, but you know, people wanted this. I know. You wanted to do this. And I wanted it. This is my wedding present. You don't have to get me anything now. I'd much rather just talk baseball, basketball, football, Taggart. Um but but as we as we kind of dismount here from this, I think to me that the takeaways uh, and as we try to look at what the new program and what Willie Taggart, you know, trying to do, uh, the, the things that make sense is one maximizing strengths. He seems willing to put players in a position 
to succeed. He's shown showed in previous stops that like if things aren't working, he'll make a wholesale change. He basically changed his whole philosophical approach on offense, or at least a lot of it at USF, kind of midway through when he realized things weren't working. His job was essentially on the line. Um, he's bringing in a defensive coordinator to implement his defense that you alluded to earlier. Uh, just even some of the recruiting philosophies, like going after Florida and Georgia in a in a within a system on offense that is predicated on speed and athletes playing in space, like it's a mesh that makes sense. A lot of what Willie Taggart's doing makes sense. We obviously have to see what happens uh, with on-field results, but uh, in terms of putting in accountability, uh, creating a healthier culture, and maximizing or at least making steps to maximize strengths, like he seems to be doing that. And that's what, to me, the previous regime lost track of. And that's why things bottom out quickly. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think there's also a difference. I think Jimbo obviously was learning on the job. It was his first time being a head coach. And the fact that he won a national title so quickly shows that he's an incredible coach. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of managing that goes into being the head coach. And I think there were times where Jimbo managed it very well, and there were times where he very much mismanaged it. I think Willie's had the ability to cut his teeth at lower rungs on the ladder. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of allowed him to learn on the fly. And it's going to be interesting to watch how Willie does at a job that is such a pressure cooker. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to take a wait-and-see attitude with any new coach ever at a program. But I think it will be interesting to see that dynamic where Jimbo was having to do it in a very public eye, at a very public place, at a very high level, and had immense success very quickly while following a legend compared to the guy that now kind of comes in at a program that is thought to be at that level, but obviously did not live at that level a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see kind of what, how Willie's able to, one, take, keep in mind, man, like, it's not a bad situation. No. Instead of growing toxic, but I think that works to the new staff's advantage. I don't think he adopted a roster that has a lot of uh, negative beings on it. I think yeah. there are a few. But I don't think it's one of those rosters where you need to run 20 guys off because they're bad apples. Now, you may need to run some guys off because they're not guys that should be playing here or yeah. guys that should be on scholarship here anymore. But that's a different topic for a different day. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have enough talent to field 22 really good players and put together pretty good 44 players. Mm-hmm. You win a lot of games if you have 44 good players. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, ex- I'm excited because I think it's just going to be a healthier situation for us to cover, for fans to watch uh, doesn't mean it's going to be the same heights of success we don't know like you said we'll take a wait and see approach but i'm interested to see i guess what what happens and if, if willie can avoid the similar pitfalls that, that seem to plague this staff now a new staff can have different set of issues and i think that's something that we all need to remember um but so far it's just a lot more positive energy and again it's early on but i think that's important i also think your first staff is usually the staff you really wanted. I think that's true for FSU in this case, outside of maybe Harlan Barnett. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they want Jim Levitt, if mm-hmm. we're going to be honest about the situation. I don't think Harlan's a bad you know, no, follow-up. No, I, I, I think if that's your To not getting the guy that you originally expected. Not a bad second um, hit. But I think your first staff is very much the group you really want. And I think as those guys get picked off or move up in the world or whatever mm-hmm. happens, it's sometimes tough. That's a tough deal. You, you need to... Hiring the right people to work together mm-hmm. is such an immense piece of the puzzle. Well, he's talked about and that, too. I he's think in recent it. years with FSU, that is a big area where they fell short. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, the, the chemistry and getting guys that are the right fit, both players, coaches, it just it wasn't. Again, that kind of goes to the 
to the top of the food chain. Um, and we're going to talk about a lot of that in the next one, which uh, the What the Hell Part 2 with Wayne McGahey is the plan, not with Chris Nee. Chris, you did your uh, you did your time. You made it. Paid my dues. That's appreciated. I think this was insightful to people. Uh, I don't feel as good about this as I thought I was going to. More like I just feel stressed out now after reliving all that, but it wasn't therapeutic for me. Um, but hopefully it was entertaining for you guys and informative. Uh, we're going to go into a lot more like the minutia for the next one, and uh, I'm enjoying, or I'm going to enjoy, I think, Wayne's uh, Cavalier. Um, when he becomes unhinged. Wayne's very black and white. Uh, there's not much in between and not much nuance the way he sees things, which is why he's my friend, because I'm, I'm very much the opposite, and it's nice to have that in your life, someone that, that's the opposite of you. Um, and I think it'll be, it'll be fun. Wait till we ask him about Shamar Kilby Lane sneaking under the fence. <laughs> <laughs> for, for the Knowles 24-7 podcast, this is Brendan Sinone. Uh, thanks to Chris Nee for doing his time. Remember to give us a, uh, a five-star rating if you can on iTunes, or no rating at all. Don't be a jerk and do like a two-star, unless you want to hurt my feelings. Guys, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.